here's where we're going to be tonight. I really wanted to just have another opportunity to focus on Jesus in a manner that I think actually has a message to it of both contentment and peace, which, you know, this is a season in which we actually can inventory so much of what God has been gracious to us with, and we can keep our eyes on him in this season, a season that is to be boasting in him, but a culture which boasts in many other things than him. And so here we go. I'd like you to turn in Luke, please, chapter 12. And you may say, what about the Proverbs? We'll get back to them because it's in the Bible, and I know I haven't finished it, so we'll get back there. What about 2 Kings? Well, it's in the Bible too, and I haven't finished there, so we'll get back there. But these next two Sundays as well, we're going to have the Christmas message. And I'm just laying a narration for you that the past two weeks have been taking us back to the very, very, very beginning. And the phrase that I used with regard to the motivation of understanding now the message through Mary, through the shepherds, through the wise men, through Joseph, has everything to do with this corridor of redemption that God had humanity walk down. Broad in places, but there's only one outcome, and that is to meet up with God, and that is to make a decision concerning God. So Jesus here in Luke 12, I've always found this to be encouraging because when at times my heart becomes overwhelmed, grieved, either where I don't think I'm at or where I would rather be, the Lord gives me a perspective to inventory. And I like that because he's made it simple. I suspect that he wants it to be simple for me wants to pull me aside and to be an encouragement when my tally marks are getting lost in other kinds of paper doodlings, when my mind easily runs adrift because there's so much input and I'm wanting to sort it out in prayer as output, but there's just too much. It's where I have to ask the Lord, would you vanquish that as a thought, which is a distraction to what I want to do, which is to focus on you. And that was awesome. Spencer grabbed a hold of my phone and he began to go through. It's a, first of all, it's a phone that is inherited. Okay. But on it, there are many, many apps. But he picked it up and goes, what type of apps do you have here? I don't know. Man, you got a lot. What do I do with them? Just get rid of them. Is that a good thing? Yeah. Do you use them all? No, I don't know anything about them. You know, there was like an Uber Lyft. There was like, you know, vegetables on a cart. There was, you know, run a pogo stick, whatever. I'm joking on some of those. But so there he is, and he's just looking at these and going, yeah. zip. What'd you just do? I sent it away. And so he just sent it away. And I thought as he was doing it, what if I need it? Have you used it yet? No then why do you need it? I don't know. It just looks like it's there for something. And he just kept taking them off, taking them off, taking them off. And I thought about it. and go, Lord, that is good. Because very likely, I would have become curious about what those little buttons were for and begun to perhaps be distracted by them. He just removed them. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with what you have on your phone. It's just that Spencer came in with a technical advantage over me, and then I believe he just took advantage of me. <laughs> and I just, I've been pondering that all day. Just That is so God to anticipate the fact that I could find myself distracted and he used Spencer to basically destroy that possibility. So now I'm left with more of a common phone. Probably I'm going to end up going with the flip phone. But... Um, the reason that I say that is that I think in this passage of Scripture, Jesus really is endeavoring to encourage us. And if we sort it out right, it is not in any way to discourage us in the things that we have, the things that we hope for. All of those things are not wrong. 
if we are able to say according to the Proverbs, according to the Psalms, that our desire, our chief desire is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that Jesus would quote, and that obviously was Israel's first command. David alludes to it clearly with his heart. And to know that the desires of our heart is what God puts on our heart. And therefore, I think we're to be excited when we have that revisitation because a burden was lifted. There was something that was removed from, if you would, the distractionary avenue of our heart and mind. So let's take a look at this and find ourselves encouraged. Pick it up. Chapter 12. We're going to go right to verse 16. It's a parable. So a parable may in fact be drafted from an authentic event, but it also may be simply that which is in similitude. In other words, this is what I've seen. This is what it looks like. This is what I have to say about it. Parables are storyboards, and they obviously have connections to the heart, soul, and the mind, and the spirit. And so it's a good thing. They are meant to be easily assimilated, not necessarily requiring a lot of intellect to have meaning in our lives. For instance, had I gotten into the intellectual aspect of what Spencer was doing mechanically to the phone, I would have been out of orbit. It would have done no good to ask anything about, so, okay, so if I press there and I just swish here, it goes off page or whatever, didn't matter. It was being taken care of. And I just simply stood, if you would, in a compliance. I knew nothing about them. I do know that some of them can take up space on your phone or they can slow down the process, whatever it is. But I was just saying, huh, I got somebody to manage this junk stuff that from his perspective is clutter, stuff that I don't know how to use and wouldn't use, nothing wrong. He gave me a shorter field to be able to glean more efficiently for technical purposes. Phone, got it. Got it. Got that. Got that. Great. I'll survive. So Jesus right now moves in this parable in a season in which many things could distract us, and he shows us how not to get distracted. Here we go. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying... The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. He's coming from a perspective in which there is a quibbling among family members on how certain aspects of an inheritance are going to be settled. And he simply puts it at bay by saying, who am I to be an arbiter appointed over this for you? In other words, it wasn't an issue for him to adjudicate. They had civil laws back there. It's always a matter of the heart in terms of what a person may or may not want of something that is bequeathed to them through the lineage of a family member that passes. That's happened to me. It wasn't within my skill set nor my time quota to handle it. I handled one aspect of being an executor of my father's estate, and that was to maintain a prayerful, vigilant duty over how my mom would ultimately be tended, and if medically there was a requirement for her to have hospice or certain care, I was the one that made that call for mom. The other brothers were not a part of that. I was the exclusive executor over that decision, my twin brother moved up the food chain once he retired from the Marine Corps, and he became the executor of all of the estate apart from her life. It's interesting. I had her life in my hands, and he had the estate of my father in his hands. And so his burden would be to settle among the brothers the division of it. Fascinating. 
And he would have said that it was probably, that it made the Marine Corps look easy, which again, that's no small thing. As Jesus lays out this parable right now, and he's coming from a real life scenario of someone worried about their share, he puts it to rest by giving the illustration of a man who appears to be wealthy, inarguably. The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. Do you remember the song that we sing practically every Sunday? And one of the phrases in it deals with rich and poor. Give thanks with a grateful heart. And we give thanks with a grateful heart because though we perhaps can say we're poor, the Lord has made us rich. Ephesians in the first chapter declares that in the heavenlies we are both seated with him and we are vastly rich beyond measure. Our problem is that we measure things down here rather than believe in how God has measured them up there. I think we're meant to be in that tension. I think we're meant to be in that place of uncertainty and discomfort that we might seek him for greater comfort and certain certainty. I had challenges in going to a garden island with my family. And my challenges were the flight was harder on me than, say, in my opinion, 30 years ago. Because my body takes the sedentary sitting a bit differently. And so I had a good conversation with the Lord. <laughs> it was a conversation that was pretty much on my mind and heart the entire time on the island. And it was basically dealing with, okay, I'm getting older. I need to do something about that and its influence on me. And so I've I shared it with the guys, but basically feet swollen. And the Lord just said, get going, start walking, start radically changing your diet. And I did. And I did that because I believe with regard to what the Lord has told me, I'm rich. So why not take every effort possible that I can that ensures I can go as long as possible as he wills, as opposed to, if you would, welcome an earlier demise. And the Lord met me when we had this conversation. He told me what to do, and I did it. So what I'm sharing, and a lot of you guys know this, is that from the time that I've come back from the island, but it started actually in Kona, I've dropped 20 pounds. And I'm not saying I'm ready for Celtic dancing, but it's coming pretty close. It's coming pretty close. It'll never touch ballet, but Celtic dancing is definitely a possibility. And so, but I'm not through. And that's the problem in how much I was full of it, that the Lord is leaning me out. And as I obeyed him, he was doing marvelous things to me on the inside. It gave me a different perspective. So moving on right now, the Lord is sharing something about the status of this guy. He's physically rich. I've had wealth at my disposal, but I'm not physically rich. I'm just rich by birth, and I'm rich in my faith. And I've had dollars at times to pass out. But there are times also when I cleave to that which is essential to sustain. This man's rich, so we're to know that tells us something about his character because he's in the process right now of surveying what he's already seen, which is the ground is yielding plentifully. means he doesn't have a drought in his life. You and I probably said, it feels like a drought. It just does. And I will say that at times, from time to time, I wrestle with that myself. I wrestle with that with regard to where the church is going. The world events, it just seems like there's barrenness and dryness. But I have to keep my focus and my footsteps really anchored in the word. As Jesus continues to tell us about this man whom he's speaking about, 
The man, it says, thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So we know that he has room. We can safely call that a barn, a structure that was designed, silo maybe, whatever it is. He's able to store sufficiently an abundance of what the Lord has given to him really magnanimously. Magnanimously means with generous output. God's not holding anything back. We know nothing of this man with regard to his faith. What we recognize is his attitude with what it is he's got. We don't hear anything with regard to his thankfulness to the Lord for what he's received. And what we do see is that he apparently, with how this crop is influencing his eyes, he wants to do something more with it. So here we go. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. So he's interested in a storage facility. As opposed to a supply depot, he's interested in a storage facility. And one of the things that this correlates to is the life of a believer. God has stored up many things for us, but we actually are a supply depot in the giftings that he's given to us, in the opportunities to be as generous as we can. I personally think I would be one of the best millionaires on the face of the earth because money doesn't mean anything to me unless I don't have it. Then it does mean something to me. And I think you'll understand the heart that's generous does not have a challenge with how much it is you have because you don't care personally about the status that it brings you. What you care about is that if the Lord wants to use you as a vessel of supply, great. It's an easy release. But I do know this. God develops that practicum at the place in which you are lean. You're rich in him, but you're lean in the things that are economically seemingly the, the factor, the number in your bank account. We all have a bank account. And the bank account can be at times fat and it can be lean it can be negative. We've all been through that. And especially in a season like this season, our hearts say, but I want to give, I want to give, I want to give. And that's a good heart to have. We have to be careful, though, that we don't groan in bitterness for what it is that perhaps our account says we can't do. But there is something that we can do. In fact, that's the implication that Jesus is saying right now. This guy had sufficiency within the barns that he had that he could have turned it from a storehouse to a supply station. And what he chose to do was to knock down what it was he had. Very likely he could have been that kind of arrogancy, even displaced so much surplus that it just went to waste as opposed to for good. But the bottom line is, as a steward who could acknowledge that the ground that he owned was giving seemingly endless supply, he chose to run a storehouse instead of a supply depot. That's the essence of this. The believer today, as much as is possible, is a supply depot. And you know what? Here's the deal. Let's assume that you do not have a penny to your name. What you do have is faith. You have an opportunity to pray for those who perhaps come to you as the answer to their prayers, the supply for their needs, and maybe like the disciples on their way to the afternoon prayer as Peter looked down at the man at the beautiful gate who was asking for finances. Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And you may say, who would say that? I would. I would. I'll bet you the joy of a man who had been in infirmity for his life, if he could pay to have surgery back then, or some balm applied to the muscles and skeletal features of his body, 
that would enable him to walk as he saw so many people pass by him on the way to prayer. I want to go to prayer. I want to go to prayer. I want to go to prayer. But see, that wouldn't have been allowed for an infirmed man to go into the holy place. He was outside of fellowship. So what he could get is the traffic of those going to that place. His heart wanted to go there, but his body couldn't get him there, and the law restricted him from an entrance. And so rather than the coins being given to him, which Peter certainly probably at that point in time had a treasury to give, he said, silver and gold, have I none? I don't have it. But the church at that point in time had probably swole, had swelled to over 10,000 people. My thoughts are disciples who were worshipers of God and rendering their tenth, and perhaps even more, it would have made an exceedingly huge fortune to the church in its early stages where silver and gold would have been nothing for Peter to give. What he assessed was this man's going to have a gold bar and what he will be able to do when the Lord touches him. He will have a testimony of God's goodness and it will be for him the start of a life of vocation, industry, creativity, contribution, being a part of the supply chain. That's what this man will be given and faith that will save him for eternity, which for us is sooner than we think. And so he's tearing it down the crops so that he can store more crops into a bigger silo, a bigger place. And I will say to my soul, verse 19, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And so he has a carnal mindset that this is in fact his satisfaction. Here's what we know about that. You can never have enough of whatever, whatever it is you want. We have an insatiable appetite that can never be appeased by more. God knows that. So therefore, the strategy needs to be not that I have more that I don't do anything with, but Lord, that the more you give, the more I release. And that's tricky because we ask ourselves, well, what is it then that I do release? Well, the first component part is the spiritual giftings that you have, the sincerity by which you can exercise the discipline that you're not anybody's savior. But you may be a part of the supply line. We had a guy that came to church. Did he come to church last week for Jesus or did he come to see rich? He came to see a rich man who loves Jesus. My dilemma was making sure that I was able to convey to this man that what I can do for him is only through Jesus and no more. I said, give me a call. I'll listen to you. And I'll pray for what you're perhaps asking. So I got a call from that person again. Have you had an opportunity to think about what it is I need? I said, I have. I said, I think we can do something for you. You do? Mm -hmm. Something, but not everything. Oh, that's great. Well, when can you do it? I don't know. When can you meet with me? Well... I got to be out of here by Friday, Saturday, the latest. Then you'll make it work. You know where I'm at. Men's breakfast. See me. But do you think you can cover it? I don't know. The Lord can. But I'm willing to pray for you and to see if what you're asking is reasonable for where you're going and to be assured that when you get there, you're going to seek the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does that sound reasonable to you? Yeah, that's what I want. That's what I want. I want to get out of here so that I can seek the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That sounds like a good plan. We'll see if you can stay true to it. So the whole deal is how to negotiate for him to leave here on a bus, to get a train, to get to a place that he feels God will meet him. I have nothing really to lose except possibly an influence in his life, if I were to say. Silver and gold have I none. I do have some coinage. He's not going to get a flight. He's not going to get a bullet train. He's not going to get a mule, though, either. Although that could be interesting. So, 
But I do believe he'll get supply that will say, I'm not trying to be a storage facility. So this man is simply now satiating. He's satisfied that everything he's got has made him content, saying to his soul, ah, it's good. It's laid up for many years. I'm going to take it easy. And I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. When what we know, the Lord is saying is, how about taking what I have given to you and create an opportunity in which you will bless people with it? And so everybody gets an opportunity for that, and it comes truly in a variety of very thoughtful ways. It can never be measured by what's in your wallet or what's in your checkbook. But what's in your wallet and what's in your checkbook, what you're willing to say, this is God's, and I love him, and he's been good to me, and I trust him. Because he says that I will be blessed, he'll open the heavens themselves with windows, apparently, that are available to be opened and blessings that are ready to be poured out that I cannot contain. I'm going to trust God for that. I'm going to trust the Lord. And as you do that, you'll see that there's remarkable, magnanimous gestures of divine providence meet you where you're at. You all of a sudden have what seemed to be an impossibility. And this isn't name it and claim it. This is core values put on a God who loves you that Jesus will tell us, indeed, our Father loves us given us so much and would not withhold any good thing from any of us. Everybody needs to be able to say, that's true. That is absolutely true. And the thing is, once we discover how generous, or if you would remember how generous God has been, what does it do? It makes us compelled to be generous, not forced to be generous, but compelled to be generous. Sometimes the generosity flows and literally the willingness of a person to do something for someone. And sometimes it is actually an outpouring in which maybe what it is you have, you delightfully render and give. You're seeing some of that happen over here with blankets and coats. Those are people that are choosing to be part of the supply as opposed to the storage. The storage has been for a season, but now there's release in order that there's supply. If at any time there was anyone that said, I have a need, you would not hear me say, those are for the orphans. You don't seriously mean to presume that those are for you. I'd say, look through the box. If there's anything in there before that gets all boxed up and sent into a trailer down to Mexico, if your need is in that box, you help yourself, and I'll pray for you. You might say, blasphemy. No, it isn't. We're the supply train. If someone in here had need of what's in there, I'd say, praise God. You didn't have to go to Goodwill. You came to worship. You were rummaging, and you found something that made your heart beat. In a heartbeat, it would be theirs. Well, thanks a lot for telling us, because now there's going to be a big hit on that box. You won't have nothing for the orphans. You know what? This is what I'd say. Yeah, we did. We gave it to the orphans. They were here. We thought they were down there, and they are, but I guarantee it, they're not going to miss anything. Well, those were for the families that tend the orphans. It means that there's a greater supply awaiting them. It's just not necessarily from this hub. This hub God chose to allow it to be a resource for those in this Community, this tribe, this flock. I'd let it all go. Can we take a Christmas tree because we don't have one? Sure, we have lots of them. With the lights too? Yeah, sounds good to me. I really would. <laughs> but don't do it like right now. Just hold. <laughs> Whittle Christmas Eve. And so as he's boasting in this, God interjects in verse 20, and this is what he thinks about it. God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? 
But who was the provision for? Who will those things be which you have provided? See, we already know that God made provision bountifully from the earth that he was able to harvest and store. And so this indicates that there was a little bit of his own industry involved in this and perhaps a little bit of credit that he was boasting in, that you've provided. See, I always try to make it really clear to people, though it's through me, it is God working that advantageously for you. And I'm never one that says to anybody, don't thank me, you'll be stealing my blessings. I don't believe in that theologically. Your blessings are not going to be stolen because somebody's aware that you are being exercised in charity. How else can we do it? When you're interjecting the name of Jesus, when you're taking opportunity to pray for people and bequeathing what it is you have or what it is you're willing to write, you will get a thank you. And one of the things that you can do that allow you to do that with humility, say, praise God. I'm glad you appreciate him in this moment. Isn't he so good? You come up with language that is sincerely expressing as a mirror what your heart says you've done it for anyways. And there will be people that will count you as favored by God. There will be people that think much of you because of that event. There's nothing wrong being thought of well by people. Most of us would say, I'd like to be thought of well by a lot more people. I agree with you. But there is a season in which what we must care about is what God thinks of us more than what people think of us. That's important too. And so the soul of this man, basically, it means he's not going to live to be experiencing what it was he had the dream and vision for, tearing it all down. Because his heart wasn't with the Lord. When you meet people, they have a heart for the Lord. They literally are those who say, I'm an ambassador of God. Whatever resources I have are intended for him. The vision that he's given me is from him. I'm willing to put my name on it. I'm willing to use my reputation for it. I'm willing to work hard for it. I'm also willing to release easily this so that God may do his magnanimous work, his big, giant work in which I can't take any credit for it except being a willing vessel. A lot of us are on those lines. You know, some of you know that, you know, it's been over two years since we purchased land. It's been a long season of putting things together. And it's been recorded in different cameras and photos, imagery, videos. I can see it all. And I would have to say, I'm surprised at how long it's taken. And I can also say, when will it ever get finished? But I can also say God is faithful. He's in the course of my life and in my family's life teaching us both patience and resources that both come and go and may go. I'm confident he's holding on to it. And I'm confident that the place is ultimately from him and for those whom at any time, and especially we've enjoyed having the young people over. We haven't done a lot yet with it, but I know that there are people in the church that are presently hoping and praying for a place in which they can entertain their brothers and sisters and neighbors. And that's a good thing. So isn't that going to be great when we all get our homes in order and we just, hey, we're going to meet over here. Hey, we're going to meet over there. Hey, tonight we're going to meet in four different places. So pick your place and enjoy your time. Because I do believe that's around the corner. So all you have to do is, great, my home's open. But the Lord also may be having you put things together. And that's fine, too. I believe that that is an inevitable part of where the church is going ultimately, is that home fellowships will mature. 
What's God doing in the process, though? He's making sure that those whose homes indeed would be open also have a heart that's knitted to the church that's open. There's a discipline in being an expressed ambassador of the resources of a home and the spiritual activity that's be conducted there with what it is that you're learning here. Because those can be tricky places too. So you look for maturity in the homes of those who have been given that opportunity so that they don't get rattled by the visitors that come. Where'd you come from? I heard about this from Fred. And Fred, Fred was just saying it's open. Great, that's good. Is Fred here tonight? No, he just told me that I was to come. Hmm. <laughs> I've been a part of home fellowships where everybody but the ones that you knew were coming, come. They were the invitees of the ones that you expected to come. And your flowers get trampled, and your dog's tail gets stepped on, and your dishes get dirty and broken. You guys are now in shock. <gasps> but who'd want to do it? Only those who are called by what you possess to be distributors of God's goodness. And you can teach people in your home how to handle paper plates, then it's glassware doesn't work. Plastic forks that don't necessarily break all the time. But in that analogy right now, Jesus says this, and this is an important part to this conclusion. The soul is going to be required. Who's going to get the stuff that you had as a provision from me? And Jesus says in 21, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The fault isn't laying treasure up for yourself. The fault is clearly not being rich towards God. That's it. There are some people that have been endowed with millions and billions of dollars. The question is, when at a time in which God says to them, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Mr. Bezos, don't know his faith, but I don't suspect he has saving faith. I suspect that in his Amazonian empire, he's distracted highly. He's been endowed with the gifting of organizing a supply line. Does it mean just because he is a supplier, though, that he's rich towards God? Not necessarily. Does he give generously? Men, things that we would say are humanitarian causes, of course, but humanitarian causes will not save a person from condemnation if they have not understood that God is the provider. So I use Bezo as an example. He's definitely rated as one of the wealthiest men on the face of the earth. I think he might finally be getting around to getting married. And he probably is, don't know. But for a while, he just gallivanted around with his wife. And so the question is, will he be sobered up in an event in which he says, oh my goodness, I've squandered this part of my life in pursuing the things of my flesh and boasting in my goodness in commerce to people, delivering goods in the speed of light, taking back the parcels that they don't like. I'm a good man. I've got a lot of good stuff to do. I've got a big yacht still to sail. The seven seas, they bore me. I'm looking for the eighth sea. But he will have a day of reckoning, and the reckoning will be according to 21. And so is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Why does he owe God that? Because God has given him everything in his son. And the bottom line is, void of truth, believing in a lie, the money cannot save him. You look at any person that's of fame and fortune that most often is in the area of entertainment and every single one of them left behind a fortune that they could not take with them, period. George Harrison passed away at 58 in the early 2000s. 
famous worldwide, the quiet beetle made millions. He could not take it with him. And I believe, unfortunately, he did not have faith that saved him because he got caught up in transcendental meditation. He got caught up in the mysticism of Indian theology, and he did not live a life for the Lord. I do believe that there is evidence that John may have given his life to the Lord. He was the other beetle. 1980, 40 years of age, was shot in the back five times. Didn't expect it. See, nobody expects what it is that ultimately is the means by which demise comes. The only people that get out of that transition into the place that has been prepared for us is the believer who has a relationship with the Lord. It's inexcusable what Chapman did to John Lennon did not deserve that at all. But the difference between the two, and Greg Laurie has studied this, is that he believes honestly that John, even in what could have been greater years devoted to the Lord, was able to make a confession of the Lord, and it was before he died. So that's something to celebrate. One didn't, one did. And the bottom line is, the Lord's desire is that there are more that in the supply chain that we're responsible for, the word that goes out, the word that James tells us is as a seed planted in the soil of the heart of a person which is able to save their soul. Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Faithful, the seed planted in you saved your soul. That's what we want to be able to share and to say and to pray and to exercise as well. Confident as believers. We may not have everything, but you know what? There's a time not too far away in which everything God has been storing up for us and we'll have no lack. We'll have no lack whatsoever. And whatever we felt we were put through down on earth will be a trivia that we will not even remember, period. So we live our life for the Lord. We focus on him. We ask sincerely, Lord, in who I am, make me better. I will work diligently to do better, but I'm not going to do it as a result to impress you. I will do it only that I might have another day strong in you. I'll change the things that need to be changed. I'll remove the stuff that is a potential distraction to me. So I appreciate whatever he removed, whatever 20 some apps. Again, they, they were apps that you guys said, I got that one. No big deal. It wasn't a big deal to me either. All it was was a blurb on my phone. Never pressed the button. And you just went. He wasn't even asking my opinion. I thought, huh, it's kind of what God does. That's, that's cool. I can accept that. And then I'd say, hey, could you amplify this one? That, like the calculator. I really like the calculator. Like to count the money. <laughs> that was a joke. Doesn't your phone have a calculator? Yeah. You guys are smart. You don't need a calculator. I need a calculator. Okay. So at any rate. But here's what it sums up to be, okay? Just a little bit more time. Five more minutes. He says, don't worry. And here's why he says that. He says, go outside and take a spiritual exam. I hate tests. Great. This means examine the things that I've done. And by comparison, it will refresh you. It will restore you. It will enrich you. You're going to have a completely different attitude. If you trust me for what it is I say about what you can see, what you can hear, what you can taste, what you can sense of me. And he says this. To his disciples, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. Okay, don't worry about your life. Do you know there's people that are coming to the baptism and guess what they're not worrying about anymore? Their life. We pray for that in its authenticity. The one thing that I can say that I did right this last Sunday is that I heated the tank when I was questioning, why bother? I mean, we had revival like with 
20 some odd people in several different areas of the month of summer and that was good but we've moved into the fall and it's cold and you know it's basically the choir we're preaching to and the lord just touched my hand and said you said you'd get the water hot for me rich you're right i did so when i shook the tank and felt it had propane and lit the fire i knew that i'd be here about an hour and 15 minutes on sunday at six in the morning usually i didn't leave till eight sometimes i can get out by seven just depends and i'd watch the tank and when i saw the steam rise i'd go we're ready for business blessed lord and i was so surprised because as we're closing, I'm standing here seeing somebody walk past me with a little laundry basket. And the look was this. I'm going to get baptized. I brought my clothes to change in. And the next thing I know, we've got men and we're praying and we're baptizing. It was a family event. Cool. Don't worry about your life what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than the food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barns, and neither storehouses nor, excuse me, barns. And God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds. And so we look at that, and the clear distinction there, it's not a pretty little dove, it's a crow. It's kind of a scavenger bird, and God says, I feed those guys. I feed those that are scavengers. I feed those dumpster divers. I feed the ones that invade your picnic table because I'm feeding them from your table. That's me. I'm doing it. And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to a stature? You don't get any bigger, don't get any stronger with worrying. Don't let it be a part of your day. It's moving towards a crescendo. If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? See, you're making too much on small things that are weighing you down when there's a bigger issue. Don't be anxious. Consider the lilies. This is what he says. Put your focus on something that's just sweet, fragrant, and artistic how they grow they neither toil nor spin and yet i say to you even solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these so you need to know there are different species of lilies and the ones that we see come out on easter those are not actually the ones that solomon was able to both observe and boast in the true lily the middle eastern lily is actually something that looks like a diadem. It looks like a crowned flower. It's very different. The ones that we associate with Easter is more of a pitcher plant, but we've accepted it as a lily family member. But the ones that they looked at, which you could see were crowns on top of the piers and pedestals of the temple, they looked like crowns. They were flowers that were gorgeously arrayed as a coronation crown. He's saying, take a look at that. Even Solomon wasn't arrayed like them. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Verse 29, And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind, for all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things. But seek, verse 31, great verse, the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old or for old a treasure in heaven in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we treasure the things of God. We treasure the people of God. We treasure the nation of God. We treasure this beautiful bride of God, the church. We treasure it. We render ourselves as vessels for it. We're vessels that are seated here. 
Yeah, but how does it make the, you know, bling happen? I don't have a clue. I just know that if I prioritize God, he prioritizes me. And I'm by no comparison least than others, and I'm not greater than others. He just neutralizes everything that deals with pride and arrogancy and anxiousness. And he says, this is how I'm going to do it. And I remember the days when in walking as a single man, there wasn't a table that was prepared for me in the evening. I was really on my own. But as I began to understand how the Lord worked, I remembered that I was being given like apples and bread and yogurts and cartons of milk. I was eating as if I was a king, but I was receiving it as a vagabond. I always accepted it as if it was from Solomon's table. But I remember that I was sustained in surprising ways. And therefore, what I knew I could do is that in times in which that bag that was in my hand from McDonald's, the window could be rolled down on my car, and I could take the second that they give you and whistle that person that's seated with the sign, anything will help. And I'd say, come over here. You hungry? Yeah. God told me to give this to you. God bless you. And if I had time and nobody was in back of my car, I would say, I'm going to pray for you. And a smile would come on their face and they'd go through the bag as if it was a treasury. See, those are the moments that we can live for and ought to live for. And Jesus simply says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So I always know when there's a bankruptcy in my life spiritually because it wasn't rendered to God first and therefore it has no security. It gets vanquished, eaten up. But when my focus is on God, when my purpose is to serve the Lord, when it's to give what I have, to sacrifice what may be indeed that which I could be a beneficiary of, but if I leave it in God's hands, guess what he does? He says, you're a good steward. I'm going to enrich you because these things don't bind you. You live in a day-to-day -day appreciation and you've proven yourself in situation after situation, after poverty, you got more coming. You're faithful.